Good morning, and good morning to all of our campuses who are joining us right now in Aurora and in Elgin and Crystal Lake and at the North Shore and the Cathedral, and of course, good morning to our family here in Rolling Meadows. It's great to see you this morning. <laughs> you know, in 1997, a movie came out that, um, even though that was 11 years before I was born, it really <laughs> shaped my childhood and also the way that I decorate my office. And uh, that movie was Star Wars. And uh, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm letting you in a bit on my nerdy side right now. I'm a big Star Wars fan, mostly because of my grandmother. Thanks, Grandma. Because every time we would go over to Grandma's house, she would pop in the Star Wars VHS and we would watch it together. And then she bought some action figures and so we would obviously play with those. And I was so uh, amazed by the Star Wars world, you know, space battles, you know. what. Middle, you know, middle school kid would not love lasers and lightsabers and Jedi and awesome, right? A Death Star, whoa, what is that? And, and so I was amazed by this. And then in 1999, the, the prequels came out, right? And uh, you might have some thoughts on that, uh, but I loved them. I absolutely loved them. It was a new way to see the world, new characters, old characters that you learned new things about. It was amazing to me. And then in my 20s, uh, something that I never thought would happen, happened. And Lucasfilm was purchased by Disney. Come on, the House of Mouse now making a Star Wars? I was like, this is it. And, and, and so I, of course, I, in 2015, the, uh, the Force Awakens came out and I bought my tickets early for the midnight showing, obviously. Did I dress up? Who knows? Doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. And I saw it and I was so amazed by it. Again, a, a, a new, all of the technology and the new world and the new characters and then the old characters coming in. We're not gonna talk about episode eight, but uh, this was amazing, right? But this is the thing that happens. We get excited and we are amazed at the coming new thing, aren't we? The problem is, is that we do this with some pretty mundane and silly things, right? Uh, we do this with movies and TV shows and music and clothing lines and Apple products, right? We are amazed and we give our amazement away to material things and primarily new material things. And once the shine of it has worn off, we tend to discard it and don't think that it's amazing anymore. And I don't think that we just do this with material things. I think that we do this with spiritual things as well. And so I wanna make a case to you this morning and that case is that the reality of the Holy Spirit should still bring amazement and it should cause us to worship God and to build his kingdom. And we're gonna see three things in our text for today that are amazing and we should be amazed at them. And I'm gonna give them to you right off of the bat. And that is that we should be amazed at a promise fulfilled. We should be amazed at a people filled and we should be amazed at a power revealed. 
The title of our message today is The Coming of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the text today, Acts chapter two, and you look at the top, you'll find out where I got that title. Um, Non-intentional, but sometimes it just happens. And listen, today we're gonna be covering a pretty uh, big topic, and there's no way that we would have enough time just in this sermon to get through all of the intricacies of it, and so I would just encourage you, we have some theological classes coming up in the future and some theological intensives, and I would encourage all of you to, uh, to join in on those if you want to dive a little bit deeper. And so uh, we're in Acts chapter two. We're gonna be starting in verse one. And here's the first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see that we should be amazed at a promise fulfilled. Before we jump in, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time where we can open your word and dive into this important moment in church history at Pentecost and learn all that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would use a simple man like me right now uh, to communicate your wondrous word. And Lord, would we lean in and grab all of the truth that you have for us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first thing that we see, amazed at a promise fulfilled. Look at verse one. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost means literally 50. This was a a one-day Jewish festival that was celebrated on the 50th day after Passover. And it was celebrating the end of the grain harvest. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Well, who's the all there? Are they talking about just the the 12? Well, no, this is most likely the 120 that are all still together since Acts 15 for this moment here. And they are together, meaning unified and in one place, probably the upper room. So what are they doing? What What are they still doing all together? Like, didn't Jesus say, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, go. Why are they still together? Well, yeah, Jesus did say that, didn't he? But Jesus also said something in Acts 1-4. He said, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they are waiting for the promise. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and I think that there's something for us in that. They had to wait Sure, they had a lot that they needed to do and accomplish. We saw that in Acts 1. They had to pick a replacement for Judas, and they had to get the, I'm sure they had a lot to get ready for the mission that was coming up, but the mission didn't start and wouldn't start until the Holy Spirit came. They could have tried to go out and do the mission by themselves, but they would have been doing it apart from physical Jesus, and they would have been doing it apart from the Holy Spirit, They would be doing it in their own strength. And so they needed to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit to truly fulfill the mission of God so that they could be effective. Otherwise, they would be doing it in their own strength and be ineffective, like riding a bicycle without a chain, right? No matter how hard you press on those pedals, that bike is not moving. Like like trying to drive a car without any gas. No matter how hard you press the pedal down or turn the key, it's not working. Like playing baseball without a ball. You're kind of just pretending, right? Nothing's happening. Like drinking decaf coffee in the morning, right? (laughs) Ineffective. (laughs) Ineffective. But listen, how many times do do we try to do this? How many times, times do we try to do the mission of God without the power of the Holy Spirit? We try it in our own strength, and what happens? ineffective, 
We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective in the mission of God, just like the disciples here. Look at verse two. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Here it is. Here it is, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the day that they were waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And it was accompanied by this sound, like a mighty rushing wind, like a violent wind. You know that sound when you're driving down the highway a little bit too fast and all of your windows down and the wind is rushing in and you can't even hear your stereo or the person talking next to you? You know that sound? Maybe you've been outside during a tornado or a crazy windstorm and you hear the powerful wind as it's ripping through the trees and the grass and the sky. That sound, a sound like that, this is a display of the power of the Lord. A mighty rushing wind, but not only that, divided tongues as a fire that rested upon them. Now, I don't know about you, but I can envision the sound of mighty rushing wind. Right? Can you hear it? I, I can envision that. Check. Got it. But tongues on fire, that's a little bit harder for my brain. And uh, I immediately think of a band uh, called the Flaming Lips and their logo. Um, you know, that's what I think of when I think of this. It's, pro- it's not that. It's probably not that. And was I trying to think of a way to have a physical illustration of tongues literally on fire above my head? I did, yeah. But that probably would have started my hair on fire, so we didn't do that. But notice the use of similes in in the text this morning. It was like this. It was as of this. And we see that it's probably not exactly that, but it's like that. Luke is trying to explain something that the limited power of vocabulary can't define. So don't think literal tongues on fire, but something like that. The use of fire here probably not literal, but definitely a symbol because it's used throughout scripture as the presence of God. And so they are witnessing something that is displaying the power and the presence of God, and that is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the promise fulfilled, and it does not disappoint in its arrival. And that same spirit that came in power and presence to those here in Acts 2 wasn't just promised to them, it was promised to us as well, and we should be amazed at the promise fulfilled not only here in the text but in us as well. And this should evoke and stir up worship in our hearts to a faithful and promise keeping God. Amen. So, amazed at a promise fulfilled, then this amazed at a people filled. Look at verse 4 and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The verse starts with and, so in addition to, in addition to this outward display of this miraculous sound and fire, they were all filled. The Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus not only as an outward display, but also an inward reality felt. They were filled. Now what does filled with the Holy Spirit mean? Is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is this just the filling of the Holy Spirit? What, what is this? The answer is it's, it's both. It's both. It's like if I were to say, I'm full, and you said, well, did you eat? 
Did you eat or are you full? Which one is it? Well, it's both, right? Uh, I am full because I ate. They're, they're linked a little bit, right? They, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus promised in Acts 1.5. Said you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't joking, okay? He wasn't sitting in heaven at this moment looking down and saying, got him, pranked. No, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they're also filled with the Holy Spirit. And Luke chooses to be a little imprecise here and focus on the filling of the Holy Spirit and on the outward manifestation of the empowerment that the filling of the Holy Spirit brings because that's what's coming next. Because they begin to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gives them utterance. He's focusing on that because that is the focal point of the next scripture. But both of these realities are happening here. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being filled in the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit means that uh, they are, it is the permanent indwelling of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, as well as placing the believer into union with Christ and union with other believers. It's also the sealing of a believer, meaning the confirmation of God's purchase of us with the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and the promise of full inheritance as sons and daughters of God. Church, what is that? It's amazing, right? That is amazing. We should be amazed by this, that God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling in us, living in us and with us and placing us into union with Christ and in union with other believers and sealing us, check this, permanently. Permanently. This here in scripture, what's happening at Pentecost is something new. It is something brand new. Before in the Old Testament, the Spirit would rest on people and it would fill them. But it was temporary and it was exclusive, meaning that it lasted for a limited amount of time for a limited amount of people. But here, all of that changes at Pentecost. Now it is permanent and it is inclusive. They were all filled. Who? The followers of Christ. For how long? Forever. Forever. And they would go out from this moment and others would follow Christ and they would be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Permanent and inclusive. The moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that work, we have come to faith in Jesus Christ and we have received the Holy Spirit. So what are some realities that this brings to us? Well, a couple of things. One, it means that God is always with you. God is with you always. In your highest of highs and in your lowest of lows, we have the Holy Spirit, God, with us. You are not alone. You are not forsaken. He is with you always. It also means that we are with Christ always. He's not some distant, far off deity. We have full and complete access to Christ, always. We are in union with him. Another reality is it plants us permanently in an uncommon community with believers, always. And it means that we are, we can have full assurance of our salvation because we have been sealed, purchased and sealed. And so we can be confident in our salvation. Praise God, amen? Praise God. We're not done. 
We're not done. That's just the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We also have the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is the complete and total yielding to God so the Spirit is free to occupy every part of our lives, controlling us and guiding us, and then his Spirit comes through to fulfill the mission of God. This is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in us, which is actually gonna bring us to our last point, which is that we should be amazed at a power revealed. Amazed at a power revealed. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit and then at the end of verse four it says they begin to speak in other tongues or languages. This is an earthly known language to the hearer but an unknown language to the speaker. It's like if I were to start speaking French right now. I don't know any French. I mean I know like wee oui, wee, oui, right? Like, but like that, that's not what's happening here. This is fluent speech. This is fluent speaking of another unknown language another unknown earthly language as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the power of the Holy Spirit miraculously giving them the ability to speak in another language in this moment. And we're gonna see that played out in our next couple of verses. Look at verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. It probably wasn't the sound of them speaking in tongues, but the sound of the wind brought them together. It was so loud that it brought all of these Jewish men all over the place, all together, and they hear them speaking tongues, right? Um, and so it, it's much like uh, if we were to hear a, a strange noise in our house at night, right? We would go and check and see what that is, typically with a baseball bat, right? Um, and they get there and they're bewildered. They're bewildered because each of them was hearing in their own language, and they were, what's the word? Amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It's a slight burn. And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. A proselyte is a Gentile who is fully converted over to Judaism. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? We're still saying that today, typically of this text. What does this mean? This is the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit revealed. And he reveals his power in this moment through the supernatural speaking of different languages. And we know that it's earthly language because these different ethnic and geographically diverse group of Jewish people are hearing it in their own language. Now, this is sometimes, uh, as you may know, a pretty debated scripture and topic. And I wanna cut through the debate because I think as we're reading this, um, our view of the gift of tongues, um, if, you are, if you think that it is still for today or not, doesn't really have a bearing on our passage today. And I think that I wanna, I wanna cut through that. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna tell us something really quick about descriptive text and prescriptive text. So as we're studying the Bible, we need to understand what we're reading. Is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? Descriptive meaning is this telling us what happened. This is what happened, usually a historical account. This is what happened, this is what took place. Or is it prescriptive? 
Is it instruction? Is it a command? You should go and do this. And the reason that we need to understand what we're reading in our Bibles, if it's descriptive or prescriptive, is because when we mix those two together and we read descriptive text as prescriptive or we read prescriptive text as descriptive, that can mess us up a little bit, okay? Let me give you an example. Uh, the story of David and Goliath is a descriptive text. It's descriptive. It is describing uh, a young man named David who goes to the front lines of this battle and he hears this giant Philistine. And he's saying, and mocking and blaspheming God and making fun of Israel. And David's like, uh-uh, I don't think so. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go fight that guy. And they're all like, no, David, don't do that. And he's like, no, I'm going. Um, I trust in the Lord. And so he does, he goes, he grabs a rock and he puts it in a sling and he whips it around really fast and he throws it at the giant and hits him in the head and they immediately dies. And then he walks over with a sword and he chops off, that's not in the cartoon version of the story, but it is in the Bible, okay? It's describing an event, and there are many amazing principles that we could pull out of that, amen? Like, I, I can think of so many right now, like the fact that in the face of giants, in the face of armies, overwhelming odds, what can we do? We can trust God. Another principle we could pull out is that we need to be bold for the Lord. But we would be in massive error if we took that descriptive text and decided to say, no, this is telling me something, to, I should go and do this, right? We would have a bunch of people in our church going out and, and slinging rocks at anyone who blasphemes or mocks God, trying to kill them and cut them, right? It'd be crazy. And so we need to be careful as we're studying scripture. Is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? And what we see here in Acts is descriptive. It is describing a day, the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit came. This is a one, once in a lifetime day. And it is an incredible day in church history. And it's describing this miraculous and amazing moment. And so we can't prescribe things out of the text. That's where we can get into a little bit of error in our theology, especially as we're looking at tongues. And so people do this. They will prescribe and they will say, well, look what happened here. The Holy Spirit came and they spoke in tongues. And so if that isn't true of you, then I don't think that you have the Holy Spirit. And that is not what this is teaching. And so no matter what you believe about tongues, I think that we can get to a place where we see that this is describing this catalytic moment, a monumental moment in church history, ushering in a new era, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit. And he came in a fresh and new way unlike ever before. And we can certainly grab principles from this text, namely the power of the Holy Spirit. He took these Galilean people, these uneducated people, and he had them supernaturally speak a different language. And the people who saw this, they were amazed and they were astonished and they were also bewildered and perplexed. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit was making these simple people, uneducated people, who wouldn't have known these languages, speak in languages they wouldn't have known. The Holy Spirit here was doing the impossible. And I don't even think that that is the full display of power of the Holy Spirit in this text. I think that tongue speaking in here is a vehicle for something equally as impossible. 
and that is unity. I believe that in some ways at Pentecost, this is a reversal of the moment at the Tower of Babel. If you know the story of the Tower of Babel, you know that after the flood, there was a unified uh, people group and they all spoke the same language. And when mankind got together and they were all speaking the same language, they had a mission. And their mission was that we are gonna build a tower up to God and we are gonna make a name for ourselves. And because of that human sinful pride, God divided their language and scattered them. But here, we see something incredible. We see all of these divided tongues from all over the known earth at the time. If you look at this map, these are the 15 places that we were talking about coming together. They're probably all in Jerusalem because they were celebrating Pentecost together, but they were from all over speaking different languages. And God took those divided tongues and he brought them together in unity. Not so that they can make a name for themselves, but so that they can make a name for God. This is the beginning of the church. And the mission of the church is not to make a name for the church. The mission of the church is to go forward in unity and make a name for God. And here it is, the beginning of that moment, that movement. And so this incredible, powerful moment of unity is happening. Crossing ethnic boundaries, crossing racial boundaries. We're gonna see that in Acts 10. It's really the Pentecost to the Gentiles, bringing the Gentiles together with the Jewish people in unity in the body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. There are no spiritual levels in the body of Christ. There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. We are equal and unified. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, equal, unified. The power of the Holy Spirit displayed here is not just the outward power of tongues, but the incredible unifying power of the Holy Spirit. The church, the body of Christ, us, we should be the most unified place in the world because it is the only place, the only place where true unity can be found through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine, saying that they were drunk. What they were seeing was a bunch of drunk people. Not everyone was unified in this moment. Not everyone. And there will always be those who try to divide. Always. We see that in our world right now, don't we? Our world is incredibly divided right now. It is so divided right now. And it is trying to divide us even more. Divide us ethnically and racially. Divide us socially. Divide us economically. Divide us politically. Divide us in gender. And even divide us medically. That's a new one, right? And the answer to finding unity in those places isn't found in a classroom curriculum. It's not found in a political party. It's not found in a leader. It is found in Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we as the church in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to cast out division and we need to embrace Unity, we need to stand firm against the world. 
We're not gonna let these things divide us. We are not going to let them divide us. We are going to seek unity in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, we, we, we do it through Christ and, and the power of the Holy Spirit and through much prayer, but I wanted to just give a couple of practical things that I think help in this area of, of unity. The first one is humility. Humility, these are all biblical concepts. Not considering yourself as, as greater than anyone else. It is a direct departure from pride, not just theologically or spiritually either. In every area, just because you have money does not make you better than anyone else. That is a gift from God to be used for his kingdom. And oppositely, your lack of money does not make you worse than anyone else. That is a gift from God to be used for his kingdom. Just because you're more talented in certain areas or you have more influence in certain areas does not make you better than anyone else. Those are gifts from God to be used for his kingdom. And once we start realizing that everything that we have that we think makes us so great is actually a gift from God, it starts to change our thinking. Maybe I'm not so great. Maybe God is the one who is great, who gives these amazing gifts, and they're to be used for his kingdom. We need to walk in humility. We also need to walk in gentleness. This is considering others. It's laying down our preferences. Well, I think this politically, okay. Um, is you voicing that or laying into that, does that bring unity or division? Well, I think it's so important. Great, great. But according to scripture, is that more important than the Bible says unity is? We need to be gentle, considerate of others, laying down our preferences. We need to be patient. Lord, help us with patience. This is bearing with one another. Not just in our successes either, in our weaknesses, in our faults. Maybe you are right in your opinion, according to the Bible. Maybe you are. But are you bashing people over the head with that? Or are you suffering with those who think differently? That's what patience is. It is long suffering. And listen, we're not gonna do this um, perfectly. We aren't. We are going to mess it up and we are gonna make a mess in the area of unity. But praise God for his grace, amen? And we need to be patient with one another, suffering with one another. Let's be patient. Fourth, love. Love. If you've never read 1 Corinthians 13, it's a great definition on love. I encourage you to read that this week. But Jesus also defined and displayed love as well on the cross when he died for us, sacrificing his life for us. Let me ask a question, how are you doing with that type of love? That seems hard, doesn't it? It is, some would say impossible, but we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it, to share and show that type of love in the body of believers. And then fifth this, determination, determination. Ephesians 4, 3 says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Be eager to maintain it. Be determined to maintain it. We need to strive for this church. We need to fight for this. 
For unity's sake, we need to be determined to keep the unity of the Spirit. And my question is, are you fighting more for your own rights and privileges and preferences? Or are you laying down those self-defensive, irrational prejudices to fight for unity? This is why this is important. Listen, a divided church will not change the world because a divided church looks exactly like the world. We need to be different and look different. Just like the church that is starting here in Acts. An equal and unified church in the Holy Spirit. Going forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. Making a name for God. That is the church that changes the world. And we see. And we will see. It did. It changed the world. We are here right now because of this moment. We're here because of this moment. God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, went out in the power of the Holy Spirit, unified, and built the kingdom of God. Harvest, we need to carry on that tradition. Christ has not returned yet. Give it a second. Not yet, right? Not yet. There is work to do. There is unity to be had. And we do it all with amazement because the power of the Holy Spirit accomplishes the impossible. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for our time here, spending it in your word. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful that you are with us, that you have given us the, the promised Holy Spirit, that you are with us, in us, that you have brought us in, into union with yourself and with others, that you have sealed us, that you empower us to do impossible things that we couldn't do on our own. And so Lord, I pray right now that we would strive for unity and we would not grieve the Spirit but we would glorify you. We would fulfill your mission in unity. And Lord, we cannot do that by ourselves. We can't. We don't have the strength. We don't have the patience. We don't have the love that is required. And so we need your Holy Spirit afresh. And so God, fill us. Fill us afresh right now so that we can go out from this place unified, striving in unity with one another so that we can change the world by making your name known. That's our desire, God. We don't want to make a name for ourselves, but we want to make a name for you and help build your kingdom. Thank you for using us, Lord. Empower us to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.